This episode is supported by Active Skin Repair. Active Skin Repair is a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. I just randomly... Vinny was having a toe skin irritation issue and he ended up having this like skin that was really irritating him and it was getting kind of like icky and you know like when kids start to get like little scabs and scratches and then they want to pick at it and it was getting worse and so active skin repair showed up on my doorstep as a result of the sponsorship and I got to put it to use immediately and I got the ointment formula or the like ointment formulation and then also the spray and the spray was perfect so Vinny does not like ointmenty creamy lotiony things on his body but I was able to get out the spray literally took it out of the packaging the day it arrived put it on his toe before he went to bed and the next morning he was like mom my toe's all better. It was literally like this super amazing cure that helped his toes so quickly. So you can use active skin repair on a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, other types of skin damage. It's totally safe, non-toxic, suitable on all types of skin, even parts of the body where you might have rosacea or eczema or have acne prone skin. This is also safe for the youngest members of your family up to the oldest. So now you have one simple solution for your family's skin health needs. With over 500 thousand happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews and super safe and clean ingredients active skin repair is something that you want to have on hand for your family so to get your own active skin repair go to activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and get 20 percent off your order when you use the code shameless that's activeskinrepair.com use the code shameless for 20 percent off your order activeskinrepair.com code shameless This is the Shameless Mom Academy, episode 605 with Ronit Plank. Show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned in the episode, can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 605. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean. I'm here to give you and other passionate, driven, unapologetic moms tools, resources, and a little bit of humor to help you lead more positive, powerful, and purposeful lives every damn day. One of the best things about the Shameless Mom Academy is our community. So be sure to join us in our free private Facebook group to connect with other shameless moms just like you. You can find us over at shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Ronit Plank is a writer, teacher, and podcaster whose work has been featured in The Rumpus, The Atlantic, The Iowa Review, Writer's Digest, The Washington Post, HuffPost, and The New York Times, among others. Her stories, her phenomenal stories and essays, have been nominated for both the Pushcart Prize and the Best of the Net, and she is the author of When She Comes Back, a memoir about the loss of her mother to the guru Bhagwan Sri Rashnish and their eventual reconciliation. Her short story collection, Home is a Made-Up Place, won Hidden Rivers Arts 2020 Eludia Award and will be published in 2022. I met Ronit at an event a couple months ago, and we had an immediate connection. And now, as I've been reading her book, When She Comes Back, I feel like we are long-lost sisters at times. While we've had really different experiences growing up, we both had parents who abandoned us in different ways, and this created a void around confusion, around identity, and it left a space in our lives that left us constantly questioning how we take up space. This is a really interesting conversation. I think that you're gonna be fascinated by the things that we dive into as we talk about vulnerability. We actually have a really great conversation around vulnerability and kind of looking at it in a new and different way that was really, I think, fascinating. And also Ronit's story is really fascinating. Her mother's story is really fascinating. And I think you're going to be super sucked into the conversation and you're definitely going to want to go buy the book when she comes back. If you watch the docuseries Wild Wild Country, you're going to recognize some of Ronit's story because the cult featured in the docuseries is actually the cult that her mother joined, went to follow when her mother left Ronit's family two times. So listen in to hear Ronit share her experience of being born in a kibbutz in Israel and living separately from her parents as a baby and toddler, the effects of her mom leaving her and her little sister to follow a guru, how she maintained a relationship with her mom in spite of being repeatedly abandoned by her, the challenge and conflicting emotions of having her mom be close to her after her daughter was born, what it's been like for her to mother after not having a mother role model, the difference between vulnerabilities that we choose to share and those we must carry, 
and how knowing someone's story creates space for compassion in spaces where compassion might not otherwise exist. I think you're going to love this conversation. I think you're going to love Roni, and I know you're going to want to go buy the book. So with all that said, let's welcome Roni Plank to the Shameless Mom Academy. Ronit, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm so excited and honored to have you here. Oh gosh, Sarah, I'm so happy to be here. I've been really looking forward to it. So I always like to share how I met my guests if we've Mm -hmm. met before. So we connected prior to going to a podcasting event a couple months ago and oh my goodness, we met in a, I think via a Facebook group, just like talking Mm -hmm. through some logistical stuff. But then when I realized that you had written a book on the exact subject that you'd written the book on, I was like, holy cow, I need this woman to come on the show. (laughs) So you wrote a book about your experience being the daughter of a woman whose mother joined a cult, but it's the cult that was featured in wild, wild country, which, so anyone who watched that docu-series probably like me got super sucked in. So I'm really grateful. First of all, that you were open to coming on the show, but also holy cow, your book, the way that you talk about this, the vulnerability in your life is just absolutely stunning. And I'm so, so impressed. And so I'm, I'm really excited to dig into the book and I want everyone to go buy the book or listen to the book. Thank you so much. You know, I'm so happy we connected and then I got to meet you in person at that panel. And then we had dinner with each other. Like we had dinner in a small group the last night, which was really a highlight of the whole conference. And I just didn't understand the way that the book would touch people. So the book, the memoir is called When She Comes Back. And I never intended to write a memoir when I started writing. There's so much to unpack there and I don't want to, you know, go too off track there. But my mom followed the guru Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Netflix came out with a docuseries called Wild Wild country, just like you said, in 2018. And my manuscript was already in process. I was already starting. Yeah, I was already starting to query it. I'd done it in my master's program. And I'd always so let me just back up. And is it okay that I'm starting like this? Okay. So I wherever you want to (laughs) go. Okay, you might have to stop me sometimes because I really can talk. Okay, I'm a mom. I have two teenagers. I have a daughter who's 16, almost 16 and a half, and a son who's 14. But I met my husband. I live in Seattle, just like you. But I met my husband in LA because I'm from New York and I used to act. And I acted in New York and I acted in LA. And then when I had the kids, I kind of stopped. I was the primary caregiver. And my husband said, well, what do you mean you want to go on auditions in Seattle? Who's going to take care of the kids? And I really was surprised by that because I always thought I could maybe act on the side and continue that creative pursuit. So cut to my second child. My son is about a year and a half or two. And I just start to think about writing. My sister is a writer and she had been telling me for years, why don't you try writing? You know, I talk a lot, as I mentioned, and I was always in angst about something and always communicating my stuff through chatting and talking. So I decided to take a class and I didn't even know what genre. I started with fiction. I started by writing short stories at a continuing ed at University of Washington. I started publishing short stories and I really didn't give much thought to memoir or to nonfiction. I just thought that's not real art. You know, real art is fiction. I don't know what I was thinking. And then something happened where my past started leaking out of me, basically. I just started writing these essays that I couldn't shake, these memories of my mom leaving, these memories of growing up without her, the past that I so didn't want to talk about, growing up alone with my father and flushing with my sister and waiting for my mom to come back, just started kind of coming out. And those essays became the beginnings of this idea that maybe I would really examine my past. And, you know, all growing up, if I said to people, my mom left to follow a guru, I knew, and I write about that in the book, I knew the effect it would have on people when they heard that. I knew it would set me apart I knew that it would be interesting, but I didn't want to dwell on the feelings there. Mm -hmm. So writing the memoir was really going back and thinking about what happened because it's a one-liner, you know, my mom left for a guru and I was so used to it. It wasn't, it couldn't hurt me that way. It was just something that happened. And my mom and I were in touch and, and I had started the book, but when Wild Wild Country came out, I realized, whoa, there's a big interest in this. And I went back and I added more about Bhagwan. I added a little more 
you know, background on the cult, on the beginnings of this dynamic meditation and his ashrams in India and in Seattle. And I referenced the Wild Wild Country docuseries. And I actually wrote a piece that got published in The Atlantic about my response to the docuseries, because if anyone watches it, you'll see not a lot of attention is paid to family, not at all, families and children of people who left or even the children who lived on the ashram. And the whole time I'm watching the series, I think there are six parts. I'm A, looking for my mom on camera. Mm, Like I'm looking to see- I was wondering that. I was wondering. Yeah, I was looking for footage of her and I was bracing myself. And, you know, my husband, he's watching it with me and I'm all bundled under a blanket and I have a little notepad to take down any thoughts I'm having. And so all of those different kinds of experiences rolled up together and I added them into my memoir to make it a little more relevant and a little more timely. Mm -hmm. And so that's the connection right there. Oh my gosh. What strikes me about the memoir and about your story is the level of detail that you remember. And not just that it's specific to your story, which obviously it all is specific to your story and your experience, which is so unique, but there's so many elements that are so incredibly relatable, even though I haven't lived the dynamics of your story at all. But the way that you talk about yourself as a young girl, and there's, I've laughed out loud so many times, (laughs) we were born in the same body. Like when you talk about like (laughs) your feet being big and your belly and like being tall for your age and like wanting to be petite and cute and like light (laughs) and flirty. Yes. So there's these other, it's really layered because it's not just this experience of your family dynamic. It's also you finding your way in this really unique identity because your mom is not around and also finding your way just in your body, like recognizing, like I'm not the way you talk about girls with like blonde straight hair and their (laughs) barrettes that perfectly hold it back. And there's so, so many descriptions where I was like, oh my gosh, that's exactly me. Like, why can't I just have straight soft hair? Oh my gosh. See now I didn't know that when I wrote that. See, this is the magic of sharing your story, right? This is the magic of your podcast. This is the, when we exchange our experience, we learn and we feel better and we grow and we learn stuff we didn't even realize because I wrote that to try really hard to understand for myself what was going on and then to convey it to the reader. Mm. But I had no idea that, you know, you would feel that way when you read it. Oh, it was so You would feel that way because, you know, I feel so much like, well, I see that you're kind of blonde now and that your hair is straight. (laughs) I'm a redhead with with blonde dye in it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay. Well, I see that you have a lot of these aspects of yourself that I would have wanted. And I'm like, what do you mean? How did you feel like I felt? Like, how could we both feel that way? And that's the universality, right? Totally. About this kind of work. Yeah. And I think it's also being young, like when you're young, you are always like, who am I and how do I compare Mm -hmm. to other people? And if you don't compare to the people around you, if you don't have a lot of similarities to the people around you, then that's all you notice. And I felt like that was a lot of what you were noticing. So it was showing up in like, in terms of how you looked compared to other people, but then also showing up in terms of these layers of your family dynamics. Yes. And also to, you know, I don't know if you grew up in a two parent home. I did not. You did not. Okay. Mm -hmm. Who raised you? So I was raised by my mom. Ah, okay. My dad left and was fairly disinterested. Oh my gosh. The legacy of that, you know, I have a real big interest and I've done some writing about it, but intend to do more about that insecure attachment and that feeling of when one parent is not there or or they're there, but they're not there. And so for me, you know, the other thing for me was that, and this is in the book in more detail, but my mom was gone a couple of times in my life and then was gone. And I didn't have a role model around, as you mentioned in the beginning, Mm -hmm. I didn't have a woman around to reflect off of me or to say, or to reflect off of, and to say, I'm going to look like that, you know, or it's okay to do that. Like I saw her on the weekends, every other weekend for a while, but I didn't have these role models to compare myself. I just was this girl growing up with my father and my sister. And I was sort of the female, I was his partner you know, in a very Mm -hmm. emotional way. And Mm -hmm. I took on that role right away. I wanted to cook. I wanted to do laundry. I wanted to take care of my little sister. I wanted my father to confide in me until adolescence hit. And I didn't want that anymore, but I had nowhere to hide. I had nowhere to like shield myself from that attention and that interest and from that role. And so being a woman became really complicated for me because for so long, I wanted to be older. I wanted to be the mom, but then all of a sudden so quickly I didn't, and I didn't know where to go to protect myself from that. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk through, so you just mentioned seeing your mom every other weekends and then she was gone. So can you Mm -hmm. talk through a little bit about 
what those phases looked like and specifically when she went to India and when yeah. she was gone for that longer period. Okay. So a lot of this is in the book, but I'll give you the snapshot is that my parents had me on a kibbutz in Israel, which is a socialist kind of work farm. They're that still there. fascinating to learn about, oh, by the cool. way. Oh, my I'm gosh. So glad. I was so fat. I had no idea. Yeah. Was, they, kibbutz? Like, is that how you say kibbutz, it? Kibbutz, right. And kibbutz? then that's kibbutz is the place. But then when you talk to Yiddish Hebrew to be like, let's kibbutz, let's mm. talk to each other. That's let's kibbutz. But okay. when you live on a kibbutz, it's this community oh. <laughs> and it's kind of confusing. But these days, so my first language was Hebrew and my whole center was living in the desert in Israel with this communal thing. And the thing that's really significant is I didn't sleep in my parents' house after I was six weeks old. I slept in a children's house with kids my age. And so I had minders or carers who took care of us and we saw our parents for a couple hours a day. And so, and I talk in the book about, you know, the effect of that and the pros and cons of that. And so my parents then moved to Seattle when I was about four and they got divorced when I was about five. And when my dad moved away, so he left first, which is something that I hadn't considered in my story until I started writing the memoir. When I started unpacking things and I'm lucky enough to see that, you know, my parents are alive. They talk to me and they talk to each other. In fact, today is, you know, a Shabbat day. We're recording on a Shabbat day, which is Friday. And so they're both coming over for dinner. And even though like he left first and she left second and I, you know, live in Seattle again, we all have dinner with my kids like every Friday, which is which so- Which we're gonna talk about that in a minute. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's so strange and weird, but of course it's like on brand for my childhood. And so my mom was alone in Seattle when my dad left for Jersey and she's alone with two children. We're from the New York area. She's from Brooklyn. She has no friends. She has no family. She's on, you know, food stamps. She has nothing. And she's left this communal place where everything was taken care of. She didn't even know how to write a check. And then she's depressed. And I think she probably had some autoimmune. She's locking herself up in a room a lot. I'm alone in the house. My sister's napping. It's just lonely. And my dad's gone. And she starts listening to these tapes and these, reading these books that her friend gave her by this guru, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. And this becomes a lifeline for her. And this becomes a place that she goes to understand what her potential is. She wanted to feel better. She wanted enlightenment. She wanted what so many people always want. But in the 70s, it was a really big thing. You know, there were so many of those spiritual movements happening. And so she started taking us to these meditations. And before long, she decided, you know, I want to go to the ashram in India. And she did. She went to India and my book opens with her dropping us off at the Newark airport in New Jersey to see our father who we hadn't seen in a year. This episode is supported by Evite. If there's one thing I've learned, especially right now, it's that life is better together. And with the holidays here, I'm really looking forward to celebrating with friends and family and being with people in person after two years of not so much being with people in person. I want this year to be extra special. So I'm not calling or texting people. I'm using Evite to set up events. I've actually been an Evite user for years and years, like longer than I can remember, probably 10 years or more. I don't remember anything before 2019 at this point though. So, <laughs> But I've been using Evite for birthday parties and baby showers and all sorts of events. I actually used to use Evite when I owned my gym for community events through the gym. And even this last summer, I used Evite for a community event. We hosted an entire grade level event for Vinny's classmates where we had hosted the whole third grade. Our family hosted the whole third grade for an event at a park. And I wanted to know how many people are coming. And I also wanted to know how many children and versus adults will be there. So I could like shop accordingly to know like how many juice boxes versus boxes of wine do I need? And Evite helps it me so much when I'm doing those bigger events because you can distinguish and you can have people select how many kids are coming, how many adults are coming. So Evite is the best no matter the size of your event. What I love is their RSVP tracking, how you can message people, and how you can also link to registries and gift lists as well. It's all so simple, so clear, really easy to use. And best of all, it's totally free. Evite is helping me make my celebrations feel extra special and they can help you too. Head over to evite.com slash shameless to choose from thousands of design options to create and send invitations for free. That's evite, E-V-I-T-E dot com slash 
shameless evite.com slash shameless this episode is supported by mysteries about true histories a podcast for your kiddos so from the creators of the hit podcast who smarted and netflix's brainchild comes the adventurous world of mysteries about true histories affectionately known as math Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs, making learning cool. This podcast is perfect for ages six and up, and new episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. I love a show where, as a parent, you're like, hey, let's listen or watch this or whatever. And your kids are thinking they're like getting extra device time or what have you. And you're like, they're learning right now. So it feels like such a big win. So I want you to go check out Mysteries About True Histories wherever you listen to podcasts. You can tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you're listening to this podcast. So go check out Mysteries About True Histories to listen in and have some fun with your kid while they learn today. This episode is supported by AquaTrue. Having clean, safe water is the last thing you wanna worry about, but unfortunately, according to extensive research by the Environmental Working Group, three out of four, yes, three out of four homes in America have harmful contaminants in their tap water. So that's why you gotta check out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers have a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers, which is what we have, take no installation or plumbing, and they remove 50 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and they're specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS which can lead to potentially adverse health effects like cancer endocrine system disruption and liver toxicity which is part of what makes AquaTrue so special unique and important in terms of how they are able to filter water they also have water purifiers to fit every type of home so like the installation free countertop purifier that we have at our house to higher capacity under sink options they even have wi-fi connected purifiers and mineral boost options so i'm so excited about our new AquaTrue and here's the thing I swear it's like a gentle reminder to actually drink more water every time you walk into your kitchen. So we are drinking more water now and also more clean water. So more water that is more clean. It feels like a double win. I'm feeling pretty impressed with us. I feel like sink water, tap water becomes invisible at a certain point. And when I see the purifier on my counter, it's like many time a day reminder to like, keep drinking, keep drinking. So I want you to check out AquaTrue for yourself and for your family. AquaTrue comes with a 30 day money back guarantee and that makes it a great gift as well. Today, my listeners, can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com and use the code SHAMELESS, S-H-A-M-E-L-E-S-S, AquaTrue.com code SHAMELESS. That whole description of that scene, I'm not reading, I'm listening to the audio. Mm -hmm. And so, which Mm -hmm. is so joyful because it's your voice and I know you now. So it's like, I'm (laughs) just listening to a girlfriend talk that opening scene and the imagery and the met, like the level of detail and how pristine the detail is. in that opening scene is just, it's absolutely like, it takes your breath away. And thank you from there, just throughout your whole story, the, like, as the reader, I felt protective of this little girl and then so curious about the decisions that parents make. And I think that when we're sitting, you're a mom, I'm a mom, and I'm sitting, I'm like, I could never imagine doing that. <laughs> and so what's fascinating to me is that when we look at parents who make decisions like that, they're doing it for really specific reasons. And it's not because they don't have love for their children. And we think that that has to be the case. Like Mm. clearly if you choose to leave, that means there's no love and that's not the case. And I, Mm -hmm. I appreciate you bringing up your mom suffering potentially from depression or autoimmune conditions Mm -hmm. and things that like would have led to her inability to parent at that time. And not that that takes away from the pain that that created. Of course, it's it's that idea of both. And the other thing that I talk about in the book a little is the emotional and even physical abuse she experienced growing up. So, 
her mom was not a very nurturing mom at all. I don't think anyone ever told my mom that they loved her, maybe her dad. And, you know, that's a whole nother story. And so she grows up and she does better than her mom did because she was affectionate to an extent and she was playful to an extent, right? right. But she was still not all there sometimes. And I don't know if this is nature or nurture. It may not matter. I don't know if I was always highly observant. I don't know if it happened because I was vigilant. Yeah. Because I was looking for something, you know, in both of my parents from, you know, I'm really a strong proponent of explaining things to kids and communicating. I'm a huge communicator, even now with my kids, because I filled in so many of the blanks with my own narrative that may or may not have been true when I was growing mm -hmm. up. I assumed that I wasn't good enough. I assumed that I was annoying. I assumed that I was leaveable, right? Mm -hmm. And that's subconscious. I can't tell you that I thought that if you asked me, right. but those were the messages. And I do really think that there are two things that go on. My mom wasn't able to stay. She thought she was making a good decision by giving us to our father and she loved me. So that's three things. You know, she did mm -hmm. love me, but I think she really felt that she wasn't going to do a good job. She worried that she would be violent, perhaps, because her mom had been violent. Mm -hmm. So, and I also want to say she was a young mom, not young, young, but pretty young. She had me when she was 24. And it's not to let someone off the hook, but in my life, I vacillated between being super angry at her mm -hmm. and black and white thinking about, yeah. you know, why she could have done this. And also going the other way when I was writing the book and getting into her head, trying to figure out what made these parents do this, you know, they did what they thought they should do at the time. And right. I don't think she'd go back and do it again that way. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up hypervigilance or vigilance. Mm -hmm. So I definitely had slash have um, <laughs> hypervigilance <laughs> that has been an issue in my life, hypervigilance around random things and just like a high level of noticing weird mm -hmm. things that other people don't notice, which I've always just spent like joke, like I'm just nosy. <laughs> I just notice a lot of things I'm nosy, but I do think that it can come from that wondering if like, is something going to shift? And I actually read this in a book about trauma at one point mm. when you are a child and a parent disappears, whether that's through the book I was reading about was kind of specific to a parent having to go to war, but it can be mm. around a divorce or a death or whatever the situation or following a guru. But when a parent disappears without explanation, and even if the parent, the remaining parent tries to explain after the fact that you subconsciously always think that anything in your life could change for no reason at any time, not just yes. disappear, but just anything could change out of nowhere. And so I definitely have had hypervigilance around like not knowing what was coming, not being able to control things, things like that. And I think that that can lead to, you know, that can lead to a lifetime of anxiety. Yes, it can. Sure. <laughs> no, I was just going to say the hypervigilance thing is ingrained. I wonder, you know, maybe like you can just tell someone's hypervigilant. Like we probably could pick each other out of a crowd because our <laughs> eyes are darting everywhere and yes. we're looking around and we're like, what's happening? <laughs> like I always had to, my mom jokes, I mean, it's kind of, it's macabre in a way, but we joke like in the city when I would see her on the weekends, I'd be like, how much further? Where's the place? When are we going to be there? I'd look behind yeah. me all the time. I had to know everything, everything. Yeah. I mean, when I went to summer camp, six weeks, you know, away, sleepaway camp, my dad would send us, it was a really budget camp. And I'd be like, where's my trunk? When is my stuff arriving from the bus? Where am I sleeping? I mean, I just could yeah. not chill out, you know? Yeah. yeah. You talked about a moment in the book that I thought was so significant that any parent can relate to this moment because any parent has lived this moment, but the impact of this moment on you as a little girl, you were talking about your dad dropping you off at school after your, it was the first day of school. So your mom, your dad had moved to Newark a year before your mom had left for India, supposedly was going to come back in two months, but then didn't come back. And so at the end of the summer, when you thought she was going to be coming back, you ended up staying living with your mm -hmm. dad and starting school under very different conditions than you thought you were going to be starting school. Cause you thought you were going to be back with your mom. And you talk about your dad dropping you off at school that first morning and how you could not stop crying. And your dad, mm -hmm. you knew your dad was going to leave you. You were like, my dad, I know is going to go to work and I'm going to have to stay here. And you talked about the uncontrollable sobbing and mm -hmm. what you reflected upon that as an adult and through an understanding of your circumstances was being able to connect the dots that in your subconscious, you didn't know if he was going to ever come back because mm -hmm. he had moved to Newark and then your mom had left indefinitely and you'd gone through those transitions. And oh my gosh, my mom heart was just like 
heartbreaking for you on that morning because we've all been in that situation of leaving our child and having them have an anxious reaction and you and you just abs- want to make it better. Oh, you just want them yes. to know, of course, I'm coming back. Of yes. course, I'll be here. Yes. But it's so f- interesting because I'm sure my father, I mean, he's a smart guy, had to know what was really going on. But it's like so hard to hold someone's heart and comfort mm-hmm. them when they're like that. And I can still remember that. And I have had that time, those times with my own children where they were so inconsolable. But it's terrible because you can't make someone believe that you're coming back if they inherently right. feel that things don't work out. And I think that I had that for a really long time. And I carried that insecurity that I was going to say vulnerability, but it is a vulnerability, but not in the way that we talk about it in your work or my work. Vulnerability these days and resilience is like a hand in hand thing. You are vulnerable, therefore you're strong. You're strong because you're vulnerable. But back then- It's like chosen vulnerability. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I couldn't be vulnerable. I mean, I learned not to be vulnerable. I learned Mm -hmm. to walk around like Teflon as much as I could. And again, subconsciously. And so it took me years and years and years and years, oh my gosh, in therapy and finding my husband who has been there. And, you know, we each had our own journeys to overcoming our childhoods, but to hold each other basically and, and like carry each other and help each other understand, you know, we're here, we're not leaving. But I mean, I have a super, super like, very vulnerable spot within me that is easily wounded that way. Yeah. Yeah. How long was your mom in India? How long were you apart? So she was there for almost a year and then she came back and things seemed great. Well, you know, every other weekend, you know, I was Mm -hmm. just getting into that stage of my early teens. I was about 12 and a half when I started to look at her more critically. I'd like look at the moles on her face, you know, the freckles and be like, I don't want to grow up like that. I was just (laughs) getting to that stage when she left again. And, you know, I never had that super rebellious adolescence with her because Mm -hmm. she was not someone I could count on staying. And so I ended up, she left again when I was about 12 and a half, 13. She missed my bat mitzvah. She did not come back for that. She went to the ranch in Oregon. So Bhagwan kind of like left India, came to Oregon and settled near Antelope in this really big old ranch property and set up this giant community called Rajneeshpuram, which is where most of Wild Wild Country took takes place. Yes. And this was happening when I was growing up. And so when the whole time I was watching, I was like, how did I not know this was practically in my backyard? Yes. And it was not a small community to your point. I mean, and everyone dressed similarly. So my husband can remember and other people who grew up in this area are like, oh yeah. Like I remember seeing people dressed in the maroon and purples Mm -hmm. and whatever. And I was like, I miss that. Yes. The colors of the sunset and they had an airport and they had a bus system and they had post office and they had like restaurants and they all had, you know, Bhagwan or Rajdishi or Sanyasin names. Sanyasin means follower. Okay. And so they all had these like takes on his name that was like, you know, it was Rancher Rajneesh. And mm. they wanted to build this idyllic community. And they did for a while until things got nefarious and dangerous. And, you know, the FBI came in. Oh my gosh. So yeah. your mom left the second time when you were a teenager. Yes, she left the second time. And that was really, I mean, that was sort of the rug being pulled out from you because I was like, I mean, I still look back on it like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Like you did this already and then everything seems to be going fine. And then I'm 12 or something and she meets this woman who she met at some self-actualization thing. Because in the book, I write about EST, which was a precursor to the forum. So this guy, Werner Earhart, developed these seminars and they were called Earhart Seminar Trainings. Mm -hmm. And a lot of mainstream and celebrity people did this. It's called EST. And you'd go for this double day workshop, like over the weekend, you pay hundreds of dollars, not exorbitant, but a lot. And you kind of break free and, you know, like have these like real like moment, like come to Jesus things mm-hmm. that will help you in your life. So my mom started doing that for a while and we would go there on the oh, weekends. She's like the perfect candidate <laughs> for that. <laughs> right. So she goes to one of these things to feel better. Right. And she meets this woman and then we meet the woman and that's toward the end of the book. And you'll get to that. And mm-hmm. this woman is like, I do not like her. And in the book, she's called Karma. And in real life, because I changed names in real life, her name was 
every bit as ridiculous, like every bit as opposite as what it should be. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me? And my mom is like, this is so-and-so and I'm doing this. And I was like, are you, what is going on? And I did not like that woman. And my sister jokes that she still thinks about, it's funny that this woman gave her a scalp massage and this is in the book. She like rubs her head and my sister closes her eyes. My sister's nine or something, nine and a half feels so good, you know, just, wow, this feels great. And I'm like, are you kidding me, you suckers? Why do you trust this woman? You and, then and your mom have like such opposite, <laughs> which you kind of mentioned in the book, like your mom has like no bullshit, bullshit radar. Yeah, exactly. Like she's just like, oh, you have a lesson to teach me. I will listen to anything you have to say. And you just smell it a mile away. I know. Kid. I like know. You just, but your sense of intuitions could not be more opposite. Right. But then you could ask, one could ask, did I have that because of what happened? Mm, or, yeah. you know, yeah. because I could be a prime candidate for a movement. I mean, who doesn't want to feel enlightened? The difference yeah. is that because of my experience, because of this like serial, you know, guru stuff she did, I just like, I don't believe anyone who's going to tell me how to act or be. Right. And, you know, it's very appealing to have a set of behaviors to follow, to practice and, you know, to emulate, but I'm just really very wary. Yeah. Understandably so. <laughs> okay. So she goes to, no, I can't remember what it's called. A Rajneesh Purim. Rajneesh Purim. Yeah. In Oregon. And how long is she there? So she is there for months and months, and I don't want to give everything away. I, yes, I know you're still away. reading, and the, the, re the listeners might read. But I will say the FBI came in oh, so November. She was there when they came. Well, kind of, yeah. And okay. so the end of Wild Wild Country, I, I don't know if you watched all of it, you yes. see these like Greyhound buses pulling yes. away with all these people who are like, wait a minute, we were going to live here forever. This was yeah. our new life and everything, this Rajneesh Purim, and it's going, it's disappearing. And I wrote this in, let's see, I wrote two essays, one for the Rumpus and one for the Atlantic, and all those are on my website. But at one point I wrote, you know, I could almost empathize with them. I did because they were losing their home, mm -hmm. this place that they wanted to be and live and they felt was the answer. Yeah. And I too lost my home. Yeah. I lost my home several times. And I understand how painful that is. But I just, you know, the other side note to this is Bhagwan changed his name to Osho or Osho. I never know how to pronounce that, which is a Japanese name. And he changed his name, went back to India and had a following even still. And so there's still an Osho foundation. And when my book was coming out, they wrote to me and said, how can we get a signed copy of your book? <laughs> and I was like, are you sure you want my book? I was like, wow. so, and then also sometimes when I tag in my Instagram posts, I'm on Instagram quite a bit and I'll post old photos and I'll tag Bhagawan Shirajanish or Osho. And I've had a couple of interactions with followers who even got to know Osho slash Bhagwan after he was gone when they were you know they grew up without a world in with him in it and mm -hmm. they follow his teachings and they would say Bhagwan saved my life Osho gave me a way to live and I'm just wow. like please don't come at me <laughs> like yeah. this is just my story you know oh my goodness yeah how did you and your mom make your way back to each other so my mom and I were always in communication, even, you know, there were times where she wasn't around or in touch that much. But in the summers of later high school and college, I'd go visit her. She lived across the country at that point. And we'd have these kind of idyllic summers because in New York, I lived in a kind of a roachy apartment with my dad. And, you know, it was ugly where I lived in Flushing, Queens. And in Seattle, it was beautiful. And the skies were clear. And there were so many trees. And there were no roaches where my mom lived. And she cooked just the most amazing food. And it was the respite. It was just the mm -hmm. best. And it was like, you know, I would volunteer at Woodland Park Zoo. I'd work at Ivor's Acres of Clams. And I'd see my mom. And it was sort of just like little fantasy land. But we never talked about what happened. And even- Do you have any resentment? You know, what I'm trying to think about that. That's a good you. question. I didn't really engage in that because, I mean, look, if she ignored me or seemed self-centered, I would absolutely, that would kick in right away. Mm -hmm. And I'd want to punish her in my head. You know, I'd be like, of course you're like this. Right. But I did anything I could in the summers, as kids do, to make things fine. Yeah. I really think there's a direct relationship between how insecure you are with your parent or maybe anyone and how much you're going to express of your true self. Mm, and yeah. my true self was not invited to the party. <laughs> mm. My pleasing self was there. This is awesome self is there, mm. but the rest of me couldn't be there. And then when I had my children, 
you know, there was tension, but we did, we would dance around it. We were basically like, isn't this fantastic? And then I had my daughter and it was really strange to have my mom in my life with my daughter because she was so present for my daughter. Mm -hmm. And I really, really like had a hard time with that. And I wrote an essay about that as well talking about those times in my 40s, earlier 40s and late 30s where, because I'm in my late 40s now, where I was really resentful and I sort of had this delayed teenage rebellion where I would sort of be angry and frustrated with her and there was tension and distance because now it seemed she wasn't leaving and so Mm -hmm. I could push against her. And now it seemed I didn't need her as much, right? Because I'm my own mom. I'm a mom of my kids. I have a husband. I don't need the position in life of being her daughter as much. And again, this is subconscious. So we got into it. And it wasn't until about two or three years ago that we sort of settled down or I settled down. And that made it into the book as well. And in the book, there's an epilogue, which you'll get to, which is almost verbatim, a conversation my mom and I had a couple of years ago. And when we had it, I realized, this has to be in the book. And I was writing the book up until the very last. This is, oh my gosh. So what keeps coming up for me is this fascinating part around you having a relationship with your parents currently, with your mom and your dad. And I want to talk about your dad too, but having a relationship with both of them and the ways that you write about them in such detail and you don't do that. You were actually, we were talking about memoir writing before we hit record. Hmm. You don't villainize them. And like, mm-hmm. I wanted you to, I wanted you to <laughs> as your mom. I wanted you. And you did not do that at all. Like a less as a, le- apparently one who has less emotional intelligence than you, I would like to <laughs> no. villainize the parent who left me. <laughs> like, I'm good Well, <laughs> yeah. And actually that's an interesting thing. So I do have a question and you can tell me, did you feel that I was not being honest with myself or no. did you feel I was a pushover? No, I felt like you were really, I felt like you were able to see it through an objective lens while really owning the impact and the truth. Mm, That's really very- Does that make sense? Yeah, that's really clarifying and I really appreciate that. And it's okay. You know, it's interesting because I'm sure, and I love talking about this and I don't want to make this a writing spiel, but I do think that when we read books, especially memoir with people, with memoirists who feel like they're not addressing everything, there's like an elephant in the room or they don't seem super aware. I think as a reader, I'll get distracted and think, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then also there are memoirs I've read recently where I'm like so angry at the mom on behalf of my the memoirist or my mm-hmm. friend who's written where I'm like, wait a minute, can't you just talk a little bit about, like I'm angry at the mom that's being illustrated and I want the memoirist to realize that too. And so, you know, and it's very complex and I love talking about this, but I think that when I was earlier in my process of writing the book, I was angrier and I was probably less generous. And I think that the book changed as I grew closer because you can always go back and kind of edit and amend what you've written yeah. because the story bones are there but how you see it, perceive it, and what you make of it now are always changing. And and actually, I recently posted something about the brain. And did you know, I'm going to bungle this, but brain science says that, you know, when you, Ginger Campbell was at our conference. I don't know if you met her, Sarah, but she's a doctor and she interviews brain scientists and doctors. And she was saying that every time you remember something, yes, remember this? Every time you remember something, it changes the memory. And that is in part because the brain is trying to help you survive. Like Mm. your body, it wants you to survive. So when you are processing a memory, it changes the memory. So You know, when people, this is a side note, but when people get angry or say, how could a memoirist remember this? Or how could this be an actual recollection? Or everything is fluid, okay? But the reason you remember something is significant, the way you remember it. And so my manuscript changed as I got closer to my parents. And I'm okay with the version that came out. They both read it. My sister read it before I published it. Yes, I sent it to them because, and not all memoirs are in this camp. And I wrote an article about this too, about whether or not to show it to loved ones before you publish and friends, you know, and I wanted to, because this was going to affect their lives, even though I changed their names. And because I love my family and it was hard, you know, to tell them, my experience, because writing is such a quiet, private work. And then when you show it to people, you just blow it wide open. Yeah, absolutely. This episode is supported by my very own upcoming plan and prep pajama party. Yes, the 2022 annual, fourth annual plan and prep pajama party is coming up on January 15th. This is a virtual three-hour workshop that I run every year. And I'm telling you, every year it gets better and better. We have so many mamas who come back every year for this annual event because 
People want to make some magic in the new year, right? And also we're in this time where you're like, hmm, how do I make magic in the new year? So let me guide you. You are going to be in the right place if you come to the Planet Prep Pajama Party. If you are looking to move past another hard year and gain clarity around what is possible for you in 2022. This is also going to be a place for you to connect to a strong sense of purpose around your goals and dreams. And we're going to build an actionable blueprint for you to turn your ideas into action steps. We'll dedicate a few beautiful hours to define your 2022 goals, dreams, and desires. And then I'm going to also give you the space to really hone in and cultivate confidence and courage to go after what you want, even in uncertain times. And even when the pace of life is feeling wilder than ever, as times continue to be more abnormal than ever. So if you know that you are ready to embrace 2022 because you want to rock 2022, my plan and prep pajama party is going to be for you. If you want to get in on early bird pricing and get the best deal for registration, then go ahead and get on my newsletter list because I will be sending out early bird registration information later this week if you're listening in live time, and it will be landing in your inboxes first. So go to shamelessmom.com slash newsletter to get on my newsletter list and you'll get first dibs on that registration access to my plan and prep pajama party on January 15th, 2022. I can't wait to have you join me. That's shamelessmom.com slash newsletter. This episode is supported by a podcast I want to share with you called Understood Explains. So this show is about navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences, which can be so confusing. And so every uh, season of the show is around a different theme. So there's a season on special education, there's a season on ADHD diagnosis for adults, and the current season is all about IEPs. I love this podcast because the episodes are 10 to 15 minutes long. So if you are short on time or short on focus, you can take this content in super quickly, easily. It's very digestible. And the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Utube. So Juliana talks all about how to navigate educational plans, IEPs. She talks about the differences between IEPs and 504 plans. She really breaks things down in a really clear and simple way so that you have some of those questions that you might be thinking around, like, does this pertain to my child? Is this something I need to be looking into? Like, where do we go from here? Where do I go if I have questions? Juliana has you covered. She explains so many different things and so many different little pieces and nuance of IEPs and special education and different things on Understood Explains. So I want you to go check it out wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can go listen to Understood Explains. Just go into your podcast app, do a search for Understood Explains, and it will pop right up. Click on it, pick your episode, and get the answers that you've been looking for and the support that you need around different learning differences and differences in school. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. And yes, I agree that writing is this quiet, private thing. And you also like discover your parts of you mm-hmm. that it's very therapeutic. And I learned this and people who have listened to the show over the last couple of years know I've taken some memoir writing classes and mm-hmm. it's total therapy. Like as you're writing about a story, you start connecting dots. And so I think yes. what I can see and when I talk about you being able to see your situation and your mom's situation objectively is that you were able to write about that experience where I had so much compassion for you because I related to the story, not well, I related to the story in multiple ways, but I mean, even though I didn't have my parent go follow a guru, having a parent Mm -hmm. leave and feeling really awkward in my body and like all sorts of different things, but you were able to write it in a way where the reader could not only feel compassion for you, but could also feel compassion for your mom, because you were able to really look at, I think in a generous way, why your mom might've been doing what she was making the choices that she was making. 
Yes, because I don't think people, I mean, very few people are just one thing. I mean, who totally. is one thing? And when you think about even superhero movies, Marvel movies, there's always an origin story, right, for yeah. even the worst villain. Yeah. And so people are not just the one thing they do or the right. one thing they say. They're complex. And I've had the luxury, and I'm not saying that all memoirists or all people who think about family who hurt them or people who hurt them need to be generous to them. I'm not saying that. You know, I love to talk about writing and coach writing, but, and I would never alter the way someone feels about something or ask them to. That's right. not anything that I can do. But I think that when you really look at a situation, it helps the reader to at least know where someone's coming from, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. if you say that someone is a, you know, has a hard time with alcohol and leave it there and don't expand on it, then people will be more likely to see them in one dimension. But if you give a little backstory about how they grew up and what their trauma might have been, mm -hmm. then you might understand why they're abusing alcohol, for example. That doesn't yeah. mean that they didn't hurt you, that right. you're not hurt. It just gives you a little bit more of a backstory. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about sharing your story with the world and what has happened since then? What has happened mm. as other people, maybe people close to you, but also, so, mm -hmm. you know, people who you knew after, as they've read the story and then also having this be a story that is connected to a person in the media, this, sure. you know, the Bhagwan. Well, one of the interesting and more simple things that happened was that some of the people I knew in high school, so I moved high schools, I went to one high school for two years, and then I moved from Queens to Long Island. So I moved in junior year, which was ah, like, I really didn't want to do that. I was like, what? I moved a lot. And so, you know, those people who I met in either of my high schools, I didn't talk about this because I was a science experiment, basically, like all eighth graders and ninth graders, you're just like mm -hmm. going through all these changes. <laughs> You feel like an alien and- And you don't I, want anyone to know that you're different. I mean, for of me, course. I was like, I didn't want anyone to know that anything was different about me. I wanted to be the same as much as possible. Of course, <laughs> you have to like act as if you, you're like trying to get by. Please yeah. let me make it through these years. And so when I moved to the second high school, I met all these people and I was so fortunate to meet these lovely young women who became my friends and introduced me to their friends. And But these days when I would post about my book, people would say, I had no idea yeah. you were going through this. I had no idea this happened to you. And I do want to say that I never dwelled in it at the time because it wasn't safe to. Mm -hmm. And now the luxury of being, I wouldn't redo my childhood ever. I would never, ever go through that again. But I'm in a safe place. I'm content now. I'm happy. Mm -hmm. And I am. I feel so grateful for that. And so from the security of that kind of perspective and vantage point, I'm able to go back and dig around in the parts that were difficult. So I had those high school friends who would say, wow, I had no idea. And I've had a very interesting connection with the I Got Out movement. So it's hashtag I Got Out. And the founders of that movement are basically focusing their attention on cults, coercive religions and movements and MLMs. And they basically are a place of a hashtag, a movement and a website and a whole bunch of other things in the works, a press as well, to be a place where people can talk about surviving and getting out of these places. And so they reached out to me, I reached out to them and I've met so many lovely people because of them. And they've been posting my book and my quotes and things like that because they see that kind of experience. And actually the founders of the I Got Out movement, they are moms who were in cults and mm -hmm. are coming to grips with what happened with their children. So we have sort of mirror images, you know, reflections yeah. of experiences. And so my learning about them and them learning about me and the people that have come to their page and then learned about me has been a very interesting connection and very satisfying. I've also been on some cult podcasts because people want to know what it's like for me. And so what I've heard is, thank you so much for telling the story that what it was like for a child of someone who went and did this, mm -hmm. because that isn't as explored. I mean, it's there, there yeah. are books about it, but it's not as common. And so I think it offers perspective as to what the fallout is for a child when this Absolutely. happens. And like you said, not just a cult, right? Like anyone who is left as a kid whose parent isn't there can relate to this kind of experience. And then for my family and friends, you know, there's been such generosity on their part. My mom was definitely not happy when I told her I was switching from fiction to memoir. <laughs> <laughs> she was a little like, oh my gosh, no, because she knew what I'd be writing about. And my father, this is a, I'll leave this section of our conversation because I'm sure we want to start moving on. But my father, I think, was happy I was writing a memoir and didn't understand 
that he wouldn't necessarily be the hero of the book. Oh. <laughs> because that was the surprise. Like for me, as I wrote, I realized, oh gosh, you know, I really don't want to write about this part, the part where I grew uncomfortable with my father. And mm -hmm. I did not want to talk about it because it was so icky. And I had that feeling of like, was this weird that I felt this way? And yeah. is this okay to share? Like, I don't want to yeah. talk about this part at all. But in hindsight, like it had to be there. And that was the most difficult part of sharing the story, I would say. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that because I, that makes so much sense. And like you could hold things back, but then it makes the story less relatable to people like me who are like, oh my gosh, I see myself in that. And I see myself reflected or my experience reflected. And that's what makes the story so impactful and so meaningful. So when you choose to express those vulnerabilities that you did not choose for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> it really creates an opportunity to have really big impact on the reader and how we can have, I mean, what I will say is because you chose to do that. Now, someone like me can look at the story and have more compassion for a parent that walked away. Wow. And that's a huge, huge gift. I love that, that you're noticing that and that you actually made me aware of it. And the other thing I love is how you're talking about vulnerabilities that we didn't choose for ourselves, which I really like that. I mean, I hadn't thought about it in those terms before. And I think that's really important distinction. Yeah. And we all have those, I think. Mm -hmm. I want to touch on mothering for you because I imagine that there's, or, or tell me what is mothering like without having had a mother who you could rely on growing up, have you felt like you like didn't have the blueprint mm -hmm. <laughs> or has that come? Yes. That's like a double answer. And the one interesting thing for me, at least when I was a kid, my dad said, even on the kibbutz, when I was really small, I was really nurturing toward the other kids. He said that I would always help the little ones. And I was the biggest one in my group. I've always been the tallest, biggest one. And so I would help pick them up when they fell. I would help them, you know, soothe them. I just had that kind of instinct. And my dad always loved animals and he gave that to me too. So I was really animal and nurturing oriented when I was little. So I may have had an innate maternal instinct in me. My dad would say, absolutely, I did. So that came easy to me. But many things in parenting from, I mean, you name it, driving your kids to school, packing them lunch, making them breakfast, shopping for them at a regular time of year, being there at night to say, Good night. Like that was totally weird. I mean, my father, he did those things. I mean, not all of that stuff. He didn't get us enough clothes because he didn't really know what we needed. And he tried, but, and he tucked us in and told us stories and he was lovely. And even when he had a full-time job and was raising us alone, but the other stuff that a mom does that my kids have, mm -hmm. I didn't have that at all. And my sister pointed out to me, my sister and I are close and she's two and a half years younger. And she would say like, my mom never sent my sister to school. She like, I was with my mom for first grade. My mom was never with my sister when my sister went to school ever. Oh, wow. You know, when you think about that, like it was never anything she had. Yeah. So, and my sister is a great mom. And I do credit my father always made us feel like we had value mm -hmm. despite all the other stuff. You know, he always made us feel like we mattered and he wanted us to use our brains and to have confidence. And mm -hmm. so I think without him, I don't know where I'd be. And I do think he helped me become a good mom too. Oh yeah. Because he taught you how to be a caretaker, even though yeah. it might not have been, you know, buying you cute dresses the fit. <laughs> right. No, no. I mean, he implicitly let us know how important we were. Right. And I do have, I love being a mom. I absolutely love it. But all those little things like driving kids home from school and giving them snacks, like all that stuff is fresh for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. Um, do you <laughs> like even throwing a birthday party, right? Like oh, even yeah. like my mom never threw us a birthday party. Right. Like my mom didn't even bake us a cake. Nothing. Do you, do you ever get resentful if your children are like having a cranky day? Yeah. Do you ever want to be like, you have no idea what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have had that thought over the years for sure, where I'm like, oh my God. You know, right, right. But I, think I try. We all have that, yes. but I would imagine you could have it on a whole. <laughs> I only pull it out a couple of times. And actually, my husband's really funny because he jokes about it in like a hyperbolic way with the kids. And so yeah. my son, he's, they're both pretty funny kids. I mean, I am biased, but my son will <laughs> be like, I'm trying to give a good example. He'll be like, I know, I know. When you guys were small, like you didn't even have feet. I know. I know. Like he'll just joke. Like he's just, you know, he knows, but you know, so they funny. know my story. My daughter said, can I read your book? Will you sign a copy? And of oh. course, I mean, I will, but I know she doesn't really want to read that right now. It'll be yeah. totally weird for her. Yeah. So maybe one day I would never force my work on them ever. Yeah. How are you currently showing up as a shameless mom? 
Okay, so I am showing up by, I'm taking more time for myself. I don't feel quite as guilty when I, look, there's been laundry on my table and baskets for like weeks. I finally had to move it off because we're having Shabbat tonight, but I was just like, (laughs) I'm not doing those things quickly anymore. I'm just not. I order in food when I need to, when I'm too busy to cook. I don't sweat the house being super clean all the time. I take more time to write. And I also, this for me is really important. I let my kids know when I've made a mistake. I really try it's hard. I yeah. Mean, it's yeah. hard with your partner too. So I hate hard. it. Well, it was so much simpler when I was defensive. I was so mm-hmm. defensive for so long. I have to like apologize and tell them, you know, I'm really sorry. I made a mistake or I realized I snapped at you. I was feeling worried about, you know, you not eating enough or you, yeah. you know, not being safe. And so I panicked and I'm sorry that was about me. And I shouldn't have yeah. said it that way. Yeah. That to me is the biggest growth. And you have to stay on top of yourself because it's so easy to slide back into old patterns. Mm-hmm. And I would say that being honest and self-reflective and interrogating what my behavior is, not all the time, you know, that's part of hypervigilance too, like we were talking about, like you could pick yourself apart and pick everything apart. I do have peace in my life, Mm -hmm. but you know, I'm just like, I feel like I'm growing as a mom and I hope that, you know, being present and not rushing them and trying to be receptive to them is one of my biggest goals. And, you know, I wrote a piece recently about a sweet 16 party we threw for my daughter in the backyard, very small COVID era, you know, and I was starting to panic. Oh, I'm not going to get this done. The decorations aren't done. She wanted little tea sandwiches. I was like, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. Like, where are the moms who know how to do that? And I was pulling back those little crepey flowers you get that you have to layer by layer. I hate them. I hate them. And so I'm doing that. I'm like, I freaking hate this, but I'm like, don't ruin her moment. We're doing this together. And then I was like, oh my gosh. And then I was like, stop it. Your daughter is sitting here next to you. Her feet are propped up on the chair that you're sitting in and she's doing her flower and you're doing your flower and this is the moment right now Mm -hmm. and i calmed myself down to stay in it but i then wrote about it because i was like i think this is something oh my gosh i just have goosebumps because yes like we all have those moments (laughs) and there's been so many of them i think in the pandemic where you've been so much overwhelmed and then being like okay but there's a piece of magic here that i can't that i would regret ignoring yes and i think also that i used to think you have to be like a good fairy or like i remember the first time here's another shameless mom moment when my daughter was really little and again i didn't know how to be like i had no role model for momming i remember getting irritated with her she was little and i was like god and i was like i stopped myself from thinking anything negative i just no don't think anything negative about your daughter because that means that you're like a terrible mom i really did that's how black and white i was And then I had a therapist at the time who said, well, what do you mean, you know? And then I realized it's okay to have those feelings. Like I have to allow myself to have all the feelings. Mm -hmm. And you know, what you do with them is your responsibility, but you can have whatever feelings you have. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. Oh, Roni, this has been so good. I want to keep talking forever. Thank you. I love talking with you here. So I want to leave our readers with this. I want, first of all, every time I pop on social media, which is like multiple times a day, your book has been acknowledged for something new and a new award, (laughs) a new acknowledgement, a new nomination. So I'm so, so glad that the book is getting the acknowledgement that it is because it's absolutely deserved. I want everyone to go get the book, read the book and love the book as much as I do. So tell people where they can connect with you, you, where they can follow you online, where they can get the book and all that. Okay. Thank you, Sarah. And also thank you for your thoughtful questions and for really, I just felt like we were really together here and it made this fly by and it was so great. So thank you. Everything for me is Ronit Plank. So it's just my name. You can find me everywhere, Ronit Plank. So I have a website where you can get the book. You can even listen to the first two chapters of the audiobook as a gift. Just download it and listen to it. And if you can handle my voice and you like audiobooks, you can get it there. Your your book, (laughs) your voice is amazing. Thank you. So you can get it an ebook, audiobook. You can get it on Amazon. You can support your local bookstore, which I think you should. You can find me on Instagram at Ronit Plank. You can find me LinkedIn, Twitter, the whole shebang. And I have another book coming out in the spring of short stories that I wrote before I wrote nonfiction. And a lot of those are about my early parenting, but they're fiction. So that's coming out in the new year. And I'm part of an anthology called The Parenting Odyssey, which is coming out in a couple of weeks. And it will be almost out when this airs. And that is about parenting during the pandemic. And that is where that piece is that I talked about with the Sweet 16. So lots of stuff happening. And I would just love to connect with you. And so definitely come and find me. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that you're getting so much stuff out there and so much attention and momentum. So your name is R-O-N-I-T for people looking R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. We'll have everything linked up in the show notes. So if people go to shamelessmom.com and then click on the episode with Roni Plank, you'll be able to pop right through to her website, to Instagram, all those things. Oh my goodness, Roni. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I'm so grateful that we got connected through some random Facebook thread and then (laughs) person and had our magical dinner. And now we're here. Thank you for your time. Sarah, thank you so, so much. And thanks everyone for being here. Mamas, before I let you go, quick reminder, if you want to get first dibs on your spot in my 2022 plan and prep pajama party on January 15th, pop over to shamelessmom.com slash newsletter, and you will get early access and early bird pricing. That's shamelessmom.com slash newsletter. Thank you so much for joining me in the Shameless Mom Academy today. I really, really appreciate you being here and I hope you learned something new. As always, this conversation will be continued over in our free private Facebook group. You can join that group by going to shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook to connect with other shameless moms just like you. Additionally, if this is your first time listening to the show, know that we are here every Monday and Wednesday with a brand new episode. So make sure you subscribe, go to whatever podcast app you use and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can do that directly if you go to shamelessmom.com forward slash review that will put you in Apple Podcasts where you can click on the subscribe button and you can also leave a review. If you scroll down a little bit, you can leave a five-star review. You can write a few sentences letting me know what you thought about the show. If you let me know how the show has impacted you in becoming a more shameless mom, you might be nominated to be shameless mom of the week. Also, please share this episode. My goal is to help more mamas be more shameless every damn day. So please do share this episode. You can take a screenshot of the episode on your phone and then share it out on social media. Tag me at the Shameless Mom Academy on Facebook or Instagram. I'm quick to reply and eager to send you Facebook love and love to be connected to all of you. So again, thank you for being here. I can't wait to be back here again with you in just a couple days. And until then, no matter what you do today, make sure you do it shamelessly. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not gonna tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.